0: Okay, well, let's begin then with a word of prayer. Oh, loving Father, Lord, we're going to talk tonight about this subject of the mark of the beast. And Lord, we don't want that mark. And so our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would give us wisdom tonight. I have been telling these people, Lord, that you will lead us into the truth. And that if we are willing to follow the truth, you will lead us into more truth. And that is really our desire. That's why we're here. We need to understand what's happening in these last days. And our prayer is that you would guide us into that truth and prepare us for your coming. And we pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on this place and that you would guide each and every heart and mind. Help us to hear the things we need to hear, Lord. Help us to understand. And most importantly of all, help us to apply it to our lives. We pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight's topic is the mark of the beast. And I have to tell you that there are a lot of different thoughts and ideas about what that could be from a lot of different people. But I thought that we would start tonight with... A warning from the Bible and it's in Revelation chapter 14 and it is the most fearful warning that you will read. Notice what it says in Revelation 14 verse 9 and 10. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. That's a pretty fearful warning, isn't it? And this should tell us that we do not want the mark of the beast. Well, there are a lot of people that have a lot of different ideas about what that mark could possibly be. And there are some people that think, well, it could be some kind of government identification card like a social security card. And then there are others that think, no, it's going to be a a barcode like on a can at the grocery store. And still others are saying, no, it's going to be a a credit card. And then still others say, no, it's going to be a microchip underneath of the skin. And then there are still other people that say, you know, all of that's just too fancy. Maybe it's just going to be a tattoo on your forehead with 666. Well, those are all interesting ideas. But what does the Bible say, right? I'd like to go straight to the Bible tonight. Let's go to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. And so if you have one of our seminar Bibles from your table there, that's going to be page 1418, Revelation chapter 13. And I'd like you to notice what it says starting in verse 16. The Bible says he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is six, six, six. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now there are uh, several things that we can discover here in this passage. First of all, I'd like you to notice that 666 is not the mark of the beast. Did you catch that? It is the number of the beast, but it's not the mark of the beast. And I'll point you back to verse 18. Look at it again. It says, Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. And so we see here that it's the number of the beast. It's not the mark of the beast. The second thing that we see that I want to point out to you is something that is not commonly known or talked about. And that is that those who are lost in the last days are not the only ones who are marked. Did you catch that one? Look at chapter 14, verse 1 again. It says that there is this group of people standing with the Lamb. And who is the Lamb representing? Jesus Christ, yes, uh, John the Baptist saw Jesus walking by and said, behold the Lamb of God, right? So we know that that Lamb is symbolizing Jesus, and he's standing there with this group of people on Mount Zion, that's the city of God in heaven, and it says that they have the name of their Father on their forehead. And so that means that both the righteous and the unrighteous, both the good guys and the bad guys, are all going to be marked at the end of time. Everyone is going to be marked. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's a very interesting story and a statement. But before we talk about that, let me just set the background for this. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses has just finished giving God's people the Ten Commandments, and then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is describing how these commandments are supposed to be in their heart, and then he goes on in chapter 6 verse 8 to say, you shall bind them, that them is the Ten Commandments, as a sign where? "...on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets wear." Between your eyes. So between your eyes is your forehead. And so here we see that this is talking about the law of God. And here in the Old Testament, we see an example of exactly what is being talked about in the book of Revelation. Remember that I told you that out of the 400 plus verses that are in the book of Revelation, 276 of them are at least partially quoted in the book of Revelation. And so you can see an example of how things are in the Old Testament that you see in the book of Revelation. And remember, I told you that the things that are real and literal in the Old Testament, are often figurative and symbolic in the New. And so when we look back at the book of Deuteronomy, we see that the law of God was to be a sign on their hand and on their forehead. Now, I have a couple of questions for you. Could it be that the mark of the beast will simply be a counterfeit of what God commands here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. What did God mean when he told them to bind the law on their hand and on their forehead? What do you think he meant? Do you think that he expected them to take that literally? I see heads going, no. No, he didn't. But I'll tell you this. Some of the people did. And maybe not immediately, but eventually many of the Jews begin to wear something called phylacteries on their forehead and on their hands and arms. Here's a picture of a phylactery. And this is what it looks like on a person. And notice that box on that boy's head there, and he's got those straps on his arm and the same with this man here and notice that here he's got it wrapped around his hand and then up his arm and right here above the elbow is another box supposedly to put it right near to your heart and inside those boxes is a little piece of parchment or paper with the commandments of God written on those. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think that that's what God meant for them to do? Do you think that God's plan was to have His law on a piece of paper and kept in a pouch close to our hearts? Well, fortunately for us, we don't have to guess. Because the Bible interprets itself, right? And the new covenant promise tells us exactly what God intended. In Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10 it says, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Uh, Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7 also gives us a hint into what God intended. Notice what it says. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so you see, the heart in the Bible is symbolic of where our thoughts and affections uh, are. And so when the law of God is written on our heart, What it is saying is that it becomes a part of you. It becomes part of your character. Your attitude is changed when you come into harmony with the character of God. And there's a change that happens in a person when God writes His law in their mind and in their heart. Friends, you see, the battleground of revelation is the human mind. It is a battle of persuasion. And the mark of the beast is not a matter of coercion. No one is going to be forced to take the mark of the beast. But rather, it is a matter of deception and being deceived into receiving that mark. Notice what it says here in Revelation chapter 19 verse 20. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs and wonders in his place in His presence, by which He, what? Deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped His image. So the whole issue of the mark of the beast is about deception. Now, let's go to Revelation chapter 13, and let's get acquainted with the key players in this issue of the mark of the beast. I'd like you to notice here in Revelation chapter 13, that's page 1417, if you have a, one of our seminar Bibles. But notice what it says in verse 1. Then I, this is John in vision, then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous name." Now here we see this beast rising up out of the sea and this is the first beast of Revelation chapter 13. And this first beast is commonly referred to as the Antichrist. And just about every single Bible commentary that there is out there on the book of Revelation identifies this first beast as the Antichrist. But let me tell you why they say that. Notice what it says in verse 5. And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. And so here we have this first beast, the Antichrist, who is speaking blasphemies. So clearly this beast, which we talked about before, is a nation or a power. This beast is blaspheming. And so he is clearly opposed to God or Antichrist, right? Now let's look at another one. Look with me at verse 7. Verse 7 says, it was granted to him, that is the first beast, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now let me ask you a question. Who are the saints? Us, God's people, right? This is the church. And notice that this first beast, the Antichrist, is given authority, given permission by God to make war... Another way of saying war with God's people is what? Think of another word. When, When God's people are being persecuted, that persecution, right? Okay, so here this first beast, the Antichrist, is allowed to persecute God's people. So clearly that's opposed to Christ. Christ wouldn't persecute his own people, so this is opposed to Christ or Antichrist. And so we see here that that's what this first beast is. Now, I'd like you to notice that in Revelation chapter 13, from verse 1 to verse 10, it's talking about that first beast. But notice verse 11. Verse 11, John says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. And so here we see a second beast in Revelation chapter 13. And John says this one had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. So another way of identifying this second beast would be to call him the lamb-like beast. Okay? So we have the first beast in in Revelation 13 verses 1 through 10, who's also known as the Antichrist, and then we have the second beast in verse 11 through the end of the chapter, verse 18, and that second beast could also be known as the lamb-like beast. Now, how many of you were here on the first night? Oh, keep your hands up. Everybody look around. Praise God. Look at that. Okay, now, you remember what we said on the first night that water is a symbol of in Bible prophecy. Populated area, peoples, multitude, nations, tongue, right? A richly, densely populated area. And so if you weren't here the first night, we went to Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, and that's where we saw that. Okay, so what we have here is this first beast, which I told you is representative of a nation or a power, right? Now I've told you that, but I haven't showed you that. But if you keep coming, I'm going to show you from the Word of God that that's what that symbol means. Now, the first beast rises up out of the sea. So what we have is a nation or a power rising up in an already densely, richly populated area. So what we're seeing there is a nation coming in and through war conquering that nation that's there and then rising up in that place. And then we look... At Revelation 13, verse 11, and we see this second beast, which represents a nation, rising up out of the earth. And so if the sea represents a richly, densely populated area, and the earth is the opposite of the sea, then we see a nation rising up in a relatively unpopulated area. So I just want you to see how the symbols work. Now this second beast, notice what it says about him. It says that verse 11, he came up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. And so this second beast here can be sometimes referred to as the lamb like beast. Now I'd like you to notice what it says in verse 14. It says, then he deceives those who dwell on the earth. This is talking about the second beast. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Now, when it says there that this second beast, that he performs signs in the presence of the beast, who's that beast? That's the first beast. So the second beast is performing signs, doing miracles in the presence of the first beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And now this this second beast is deceiving people by the signs that he is doing. And I'd like you to notice something here in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. This is the first part of the verse. We read this already. But look at the rest of the verse. Notice what it says. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who works signs in his presence. Now, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but I want to point something out to you. You have your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 13. I want you to keep them open. And what we're going to do is we're going to compare Revelation 13 verse 14 to Revelation 19 verse 20. So if you look in your Bibles at Revelation chapter 13, verse 14, notice that it says that this second beast, who's also known as the lamb-like beast, he performs signs and miracles in the presence of the first beast. And then when we come to Revelation 19, verse 20, we see that it's the false prophet who works signs in the presence of the first beast. So what we're seeing here is the exact same event. We're seeing the second beast performing signs in the presence of the first beast, and now we're seeing the false prophet performing signs in front of the first beast, so they are the exact same power. Did you catch that? And so another way of identifying this second beast, he's not only known as the lamb-like beast, but he's also known as the false prophet. Now, Let's take a look in Revelation chapter 13 and let's look at verse 16. Talking about this second beast, this lamb-like beast or this false prophet. And it says, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And so here we see that it's this False prophet, it's the second beast that is causing everyone to receive the mark of the first beast. All right? Now, notice what it says in verse 12. And he exercises all of the authority of the first beast in his presence, and causes the earth and all those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And so, let me ask you a question. Where does this second beast, this lamb-like beast, this false prophet, where does he get his authority from? From the first beast, right? And so, now let me ask you another question. Who does he cause people to worship? Himself? No, he causes people to worship the first beast and that's why this second beast is known as the false prophet because a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of another. In the case of a Bible prophet, it's someone speaking on behalf of God. But in this case, it's called a false prophet because he is the mouthpiece for the first beast or the Antichrist. Did everybody catch that? That's pretty important. Now, I'd like you to notice something. Let's go back for a second and let's talk about that first beast again. Revelation 13, look with me in verse 2. So now again, we're talking about the first beast and notice what it says. Now the beast, that's the first beast, the Antichrist, which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him what? His power, His throne, and great authority. Now, let me ask you a question. Who's the dragon? Oh, I heard a lot of people saying it. Satan or the devil, right? But we don't want to take their word for it. We want to get it from the Bible, don't we? So go back just a little bit further with me to Revelation chapter 12. And notice what verse 9 says. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called what? The devil devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So let's do a little review for a minute of the bad guys of Revelation 12, 13, and 14. Now there's the dragon who is symbolic of Satan, And then there's the first beast, also known as the Antichrist. And then there is the second beast, or the lamb-like beast, which is also known as the false prophet. And I want you to notice, who does the false prophet get his authority from? From the first beast. And who does the first beast get his authority from? From the dragon. And so if we are going to truly understand this issue of the mark of the beast and avoid being deceived into receiving the mark of the beast, then what we need to do is we need to understand not the working of the Antichrist, but we need to understand something more than that. And what we need to do is we need to go back to chapter 12 and we need to get a handle on the workings of the real enemy who is the dragon. It's not so much of knowing the workings of the Antichrist. We need to understand the workings of the real enemy because he's the one who's giving the authority to all the rest, isn't he? All right. notice what Revelation 12 verse 7 says. And there was war in heaven. Somebody might say, how could there be war in heaven? Didn't God create everything? How could there then be a war in heaven? Is God evil or did God create evil? How many of you have ever seen this symbol before? This is the yin and this is the yang. And in Eastern religions, what they say that this means is that little white dot in the the big black area means that there's a little bit of good in all evil. And then the black dot in the white means that there's a little bit of evil in all good. But in summarizing everything that he learned while walking and talking with Jesus for three and a half years, notice what the Apostle John says about that in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 5. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is what? No darkness at all. What does that mean? It means there's no black dot. God is light and there is no darkness in Him. And if you read the passage that goes on after that in 1 John, it's very powerful. It talks about how they had seen and how they had handled and heard the word of life, Jesus Himself. God Himself came down from heaven to earth to dwell with mankind. And He says after all of that, The message that we heard from him and declare to you. And he summarizes it in this one sentence God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So then we might ask the question well, if evil didn't come from God, then where did it come from, right? I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. It's going to be page 1127 of your Seminar Bible. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives us a parable. And I'd like you to notice what He says in this parable. Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to start looking in verse 24. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The servants said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather my wheat into my barn. Now this is a very interesting story. What we see here is Jesus giving us a picture of of the kingdom of God and of the world. And notice that he says that there's a master in that's a representative of God and he sows his seed his field with good seed, pure wheat. And then as that wheat is growing up, they notice that there are tares that grow up with it. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about a tear. You probably know that a tear is a weed, right? But it is a very specific kind of weed. You see, a tear, if you were to put a, a plant of wheat and a tear right beside each other, you wouldn't even hardly be able to tell the difference between them. They look almost identical. And they look that way until the wheat, the, the grain springs up in, in the wheat and then you can tell the tear because the tear can't do that, right? And so it's not until they've grown up together that now you can tell the difference between the two of them. And so what Jesus is doing here in this parable is he is giving us a picture of the scope of history. Now, what we would say then is that Jesus is pointing out that God has an enemy, right? And so we know that that is the devil. But the question then is, was the devil always the devil? And was the devil always evil, right? So I'd like you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel's in the Old Testament. It's one of the major prophets. And it's right before the book of Daniel. It's going to be page 988 in your seminar Bible. Ezekiel chapter 28. And I'd like you to notice something interesting here. Right before verse 1, in my Bible. It says that this next section, chapter 28, is going to be a proclamation against the king of Tyre. Does your Bible say that? I see some saying yes and some saying no. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 1. Right before verse 1, my Bible says that this next section is going to be a proclamation against the king of Tyre. And then right before verse 11, it says that it's a lamentation for the king of Tyre. And so what we are seeing here is we are seeing that there is a real literal king in a real literal place called Tyre, and this is a very wicked king. But what we're also going to do, we're going to see that there's a dual application here. Because this is not only talking about an earthly king. And we're going to see that in a moment, in the things that it's saying, we can determine that it's not a king. Because, notice, look in verse 14. Notice what he says. He says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I, being God, established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore I cast you out as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Now, this is a beautiful picture of both an earthly application and a heavenly one. But there is no doubt that this is talking about none other than Lucifer. It says, you were an anointed cherub who covers. Lucifer was created by God and he was a covering cherub he was responsible and he was in authority over all of the other angels in heaven and then it says that you uh, you walked back and forth in the midst of what the fiery stones. remember we got to put line upon line precept upon precept right if we're going to study the Bible. Correctly, I love the way it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, that our God is a consuming fire. So, those fiery stones that that Lucifer is walking in the midst of, he's walking right in the presence of God. And so, what we're seeing here is that as a covering cherub, Lucifer had an honored position before God, he dwelt in the very presence of God. Notice what the Bible says in Psalm 80, verse 1. You, talking about God, who dwell between the cherubim. It is God who has two cherubim, and Lucifer was one of those that he dwelt amongst. Now, I want to show you another verse that talks about Lucifer. It's in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, and I'm going to put it right here on the screen. Uh, excuse me, Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 14. Notice what it says. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will will be like the Most High. I find it very interesting putting line upon line and precept upon precept that if you go to Psalm 48, verse 1 and 2, you'll see that the farthest sides of the north is the very throne of God. And then it's no wonder then, and and Satan leaves no doubt about it, in that last verse he says, I will be like the Most High. So let's look at the book of Revelation And let's see if we can better understand what kind of a war it is that Lucifer is compelled to wage against God. We read this verse already, Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, and there was war in heaven. But I'd like you to notice something. That word war in the original Greek text was the word polemos. And that word that was trans that's the word that was translated into english the word war but there's another english word that we get from that word polemos and that is the word polemics and the definition of polemics is the art of argumentation or controversy it is a term that is often used in connection with debates and so You might say that this war in heaven, rather than being a war where there was armies and fighting and swords and all of that, it was more like a political campaign. Lucifer ran a political campaign attacking the character of God. Now there are a lot of times that we see pictures of angels falling from heaven with swords in their hand, right? No, no, no. That's not what the Bible says. That word that is translated into English, war, is uh, an argumentation or an ideological battle that's going on. It's more like a political campaign. Another interesting definition of that word uh, polemics, when it comes to a religious sense, notice what it says. It is the practice of theological controversy to refute errors of doctrine. Wow. So, this war in heaven was primarily an ideological war. And the devil was trying to sell to the other angels that God was in error the way he was running the universe. Now, we don't have a lot of details about what Lucifer said to those angels. But I think we can get a pretty good idea by looking at what Satan did because once he was kicked out of heaven, he was no longer Lucifer. Now he's Satan. And we can see what he did in heaven by what he does on earth. So turn with me to the very first book of the Bible. Genesis, and let's go to chapter 3. And that's going to be page 3 of your seminar Bible. Genesis chapter 3. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I think that the key to understanding what Lucifer is doing here is to first notice what he says to her. He says, did God indeed say or did God really say what's Satan doing here? He's putting doubt in her mind, right? What he's saying is, did God really say that? I mean, that seems kind of harsh. That seems kind of arbitrary, right? And for the first time, Eve begins to question the motives of God. And so, we see that, that that's exactly what was done in heaven. I am so convinced That the devil was so deceptive, that he was so sheepishly convincing, and he seemed to be so genuinely concerned for the other angels, that the results of his political campaign were astounding. Notice what it says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 3 and 4. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Nearly every single Bible commentary that is out there agrees that this one-third of the stars that was thrown to earth was one-third of the angels that went with Satan. That's pretty incredible. One-third of the angels left God with no reason other than a few lies in a political campaign. Now some people might wonder, well, If God knew that this was going to happen, then why did he allow it? But let me tell you this, and this is very important, when it comes to all of God's creation, when it comes to all of the angels and all of man, that God created man and the angels with the freedom of choice. Now, choice is what enables us to love. Choice enables us to give love, and it enables us to receive love. Because if you are told who you have to marry, you might not be too happy about that, right? Because you didn't have a choice. And God wants everyone to choose whether to love Him back. He didn't want to create robots. He wanted you to have the freedom of choice. And you can't do that unless He gave that to you. And God knew that He wanted people to choose to love Him. God doesn't force. It's the devil that forces. God has a government based on freedom. And so He created beings who would choose whether or not to love Him back. And with that choice, God knew that somewhere through the course of history, that there might be someone who would choose not to love him. And so then some people say, well, if God knew that it was going to be Lucifer, why didn't He just destroy him right from the beginning and avoid this entire controversy? Well, let me just give you an example. Suppose for a minute that someone came on national TV accusing the President of the United States... Of being involved in illegal activity. Well, that might not surprise some of us, <laughs> right? But, but imagine, imagine what would happen if all of a sudden that person who accused the president ended up dead. What do you think that the American people would think? They might originally be thinking, well, I don't know if his accusations are true, but it sure seems to be a coincidence that now this person is dead. Perhaps the President of the United States is trying to cover this up, right? And that's exactly what would have happened with the angels in heaven. They might have thought that God was just trying to to, uh, silence his accuser. And so if that happened, then, then guess what? would be the result of that. The whole thing would spring up again, right? You see, friends, God has a plan. And that plan is to eradicate sin and misery and death forever. And the only way for the plan to work, and I'm going back to the parable, is to let the wheat and the tares grow up together. It's the only way to see the results of sin. It's the only way to see the results of Lucifer's arguments and to allow them to be fully manifested. And when we are able to do that, we will then be able to be brought to a point where we can see that God is light and there is no darkness in Him. Only then will the universe be safe. And God is planning for that day. And I hope that you saw last night that that day is coming soon. But don't think that two-thirds of the angels stayed with God simply because they understood exactly what Lucifer was doing and saw through that, and so they stayed with God. No. No. How many of you have ever listened to a debate, uh, a political debate, on TV? And have you ever heard one of the the candidates accusing another one of wrongdoing? And the reality is, you don't really know, do you? You don't know whether the one accusing is right. You don't know the one who is being accused is right. You see, the angels that stayed with God, some of them trusted God implicitly. But then there were other angels who just didn't know. They just weren't sure. And this whole plan is for them too. The Apostle Peter said that the plan of salvation as taught by the prophets were ministering the things which angels desire to look into. Did you know that? The angels are desiring to look into the things that are happening on this earth. They are deeply interested in what is going on because they want all of their questions answered. The Apostle Paul speaks of this as well in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. He writes how the grace of God was given to him to preach the gospel. And why? To the intent that the wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. You see, friends, the plan of salvation is about more than you and me making it to heaven. This is this whole plan is much broader than we may have thought, but it is revealed in the Bible. And we're, we're in the middle of a war that began in heaven. But while the war began there, the scene of the battle has moved. Notice this verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. We have been made a spectacle. In the original Greek language, that word spectacle literally means theater. We have been made a theater to the world, both to angels and to men. All of the universe is watching to see the conclusion of this whole Cosmic conflict. Notice what it says in Revelation 12.12. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come down to you. Now we need to pause here for a moment and we need to ask a very important question. This is a foundational question. It is one that is going to help us like nothing else to understand the issue of end time prophecy. When we talk about the issue of the Antichrist, the seal of God, and the mark of the beast, all of these things must be understood in the light of this question. And the question is, what is Satan's purpose in fighting this war against God? What is he trying to achieve by his rebellion? Well, fortunately... The Bible interprets itself. So we don't have to guess. In fact, Satan himself is going to show us what his real purpose is. You'll remember that when Jesus was first baptized, he was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by Satan. And I'd like you to notice the goal of his final temptation. Matthew chapter 4 verse 9 says, And he, that is Satan, said to him, that is Jesus, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and what? Worship me. What the devil wants is worship. Sure, he's striving for power and authority, but ultimately he is looking for worship. And in the final events of prophecy, as they begin to unfold, guess what? He gets it. He gets it. The devil gets the worship. You don't believe me, do you? I'd like you to notice what it says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship Him. Isn't that one of the saddest verses you've ever read? By worshiping the beast, which is known by another name, the the Antichrist, they will really be worshiping the devil himself because remember what we read earlier in Revelation 13 verse 2. The dragon, that is Satan, gave him, that is the Antichrist, his power, his throne and great authority. In fact, there are other places in the Bible that essentially say the same thing about the true source of the Antichrist power. Notice what it says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. The Antichrist is the one who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is what? Worshipped. Notice what it says just five verses later, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. The lawless one is the Antichrist, and his workings are according to the workings of Satan. There are primarily four places in the Bible that the word Antichrist is used. Daniel 7, Daniel 8, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and Revelation chapter 13. And in Daniel chapter 8... Speaking of the Antichrist, it says his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. So mark this point. What Lucifer began himself in heaven, he will seek to accomplish through the deceptions of the Antichrist at the end of time. And so the mark of the beast is really a final attempt of Satan to get worship. Now, the Lord knows exactly what the devil's doing. He knows that he is going through the end-time Antichrist. And so the final message that God gives to the world before the coming of Jesus Christ is twofold. First we see in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, That it says, fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And what? Worship Him who made heaven and earth. And so the first plea from God, right before the coming of Jesus, is worship God. Worship Him who made heaven and earth. It is an urgent appeal. To worship God. And then in Revelation 14 verse 9 it says, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And so here we see a second urgent plea to not worship the beast. Right? The first plea is worship God. The second one is don't worship the beast. Now you notice that those who receive the mark of the beast are the same ones who worship the beast. Everybody in the last days is going to be worshiping. You're either worshiping God or you're worshiping the Antichrist. And by worshiping the Antichrist, you're really worshiping Satan. And so, everybody is going to be worshiping. You worship God, or you're worshiping the devil. And so, the final conflict of the war that began in heaven has come down to earth. And it is centered on one all-important question. And that question is, Who will you worship? Will you worship the Creator? Or worship the dragon? Well, that sounds like a pretty simple question, doesn't it? I mean, we don't see many people bowing down and worshiping the devil. Sure, there are a few, but the major majority of people are not doing that. But remember, the devil doesn't work out in the open. He is working by deception. Notice what Revelation 12 verse 9 says. That great serpent called the devil and Satan who what? Deceives the whole world. Now notice this passage from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 and 15. It says, No wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers do also. Now, how many of you have ever seen a picture of the devil? What do we usually see him depicted as? He's got horns and red leotards, right? And sometimes a tail and a pitchfork in his hand to make sure that everybody burns evenly. But that is not the picture of Satan that the Bible gives us. It says that he is an angel of light. He comes at you with an error or a deception that looks so much like the truth that you can't tell the difference between it just like the wheat and the tares. Now, notice here that it says, Therefore... It is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their need. Friends, the devil is not working alone. He's not just flying around in the the air, but he has ministers, pastors, teachers who are ministers of righteousness, right? Right? And so let me ask you a question. How will the devil, through the Antichrist, and counterfeit pastors, teachers, and ministers, deceive people into worshiping the dragon? That's a great question, isn't it? That's the one that we want to answer. And the answer can be found in understanding true worship. I'd like you to notice this little verse tucked away in Romans chapter 6. It's verse 16. You are that one's slaves whom you obey. Jesus made this very clear, and I'm going to comment on that in a moment. But the highest form of worship that there is, is obedience. It is by the virtue of the fact that when the devil deceived our first Parents into eating the forbidden fruit and disobeying God, he gained for himself the title Prince of this World. Humanity had chosen a different ruler by choosing to obey the devil's suggestions. Notice what Matthew chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus said In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Listen to me carefully, friends. Even though you may be bowing down and praying to Jesus, if you are teaching the doctrines of men or you are following the commandments of men rather than the commandments of God, then who are you really worshiping? If we are disobeying God, and we are not following His commandments. And the implication is that we're keeping all of His commandments. If we are not doing that, but rather we are keeping the commandments of men, then our worship is empty. Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 24, Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and what? Truth. You see, worship is a word that signifies allegiance. And if we don't follow God's truth, then our allegiance is with someone else. And the devil knows this. And so he is working through the Antichrist power and he is carrying out his plan. And do you want to know what his plan is? Notice what it says in Daniel chapter 8, verse 12. He cast truth down to the ground. This is talking about the Antichrist. And then in verse 25 of that same chapter, it says through His cunning, He shall cause deceit to prosper. And so working through the Antichrist power, the devil is causing error to look like truth in these last days. And by believing and following that error, He will obtain the worship from nearly the entire world. You see, the devil's plan for you and me is exactly what it was for Adam and Eve. He wants to trick us into disobeying God's commandments. So if you follow his suggestions, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, you will be giving him the worship that he seeks. And so he casts truth down to the ground. But friends, there is one class of people at the end of time who are not fooled, who are not deceived. And that makes the devil really, really mad. And notice what the identifying mark of this remnant people of God Revelation chapter 12, verse 17 says, And the dragon, who's the dragon? That's Satan, was wroth or angry, furious with the woman. And what does a woman symbolize in Bible prophecy? The church or God's people. And so the devil was angry with God's people, and he went to make war, or he persecuted the remnant. And what is a remnant? The remnant is the last piece of the original. And notice what the identifying mark is of God's remnant people. They keep the commandments of God. And the implication there is that they keep all of the commandments of God, and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so it should come as no surprise to us that the devil is going to work through the Antichrist to attack and undermine God's law. He hates God's law and he hates the people who keep God's law. And so he's going to do everything that he can to undermine it and attack it because he is angry with those who obey God. Now let me show you a few ways that he does this. The Bible says that the devil has sinned from the beginning and sin is lawlessness. It says that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 and verse 8. The devil does not like God's commandments. It also says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 and 9, the Antichrist is called the lawless one. And then in Daniel chapter 7, the Antichrist seeks to change times and laws. The reason that the Bible says That the majority of the world is going to worship the beast is not because people are going to be bowing down and worshiping the devil. It's because the majority of the people in the world are being deceived into disobeying God's Ten Commandments. So let's review for a minute what we learned about the mark of the beast. First of all, we saw that the number of the beast is not the mark of the beast. And then we saw that it was not a literal mark. We're not talking about a tattoo on your forehead. We're talking about your thoughts and your character. Our seat of reason and decision. And when we talk about the hand, we're talking about our actions, right? So we're talking about how we think and we're talking about what we do. And we're going to talk more about that When we get into this issue of Mark of the Beast part 2. But ultimately, clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 6, when God says to bind His law on your hand and on your heart, He's not talking about putting a box on your head. He didn't mean a tattoo. He meant to make it a part of you. And I see no reason to let other things interpret the Bible. We need to allow the Bible to interpret itself, and therefore, we have to believe that the mark of the beast is only going to be a counterfeit of what God commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and in other places. And if you keep coming, I'm going to show you that more and more. We also learned that it's not a literal mark, and it's not the only mark. Right? Because we know that God's people are going to be marked as well. There's nothing wrong with being marked. You just got to make sure you have the right one. We also learned that the mark of the beast is about worship. It's very clear that the mark of the beast is directly tied to worship and worship is directly tied to obedience. The highest form of worship that there is, is obedience. And because these things, when it talks about deceiving and receiving the mark of the beast, it says that what is going to be involved is not coercion, but deception. People are going to be deceived into disobeying the commandments of God. Now friends, tonight we built the foundation for understanding the mark of the beast, but we can't identify exactly what the mark of the beast is until we identify who the beast is. So you're going to have to keep coming for that. (laughs) Now, how many of you want to be marked in the last days? Yes, we do. We want our Father's name written on our foreheads, right? It tells us that in Revelation chapter 7 and 14. Or, in other words, we want the new covenant promise. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10 tells us I will put my laws in their mind, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Here is the promise that God's law once it is engraved in your mind and in your heart, God promises us that He's going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. Not only will we follow God outwardly, But he will place a love for Jesus and for the Bible and for the commandments of God in our heart. He's going to give us an obedient heart and mind. He's going to give us a new birth, an inside-out conversion where our attitudes and the habits of our life will change. The war in heaven began because Lucifer was selfish and he wanted worship. And so the whole issue of the last day prophecies and center around worship. But you know, friends, worship is like an onion. It has many layers. And for many of us, we're right where the devil wants us. We're on the outside of the onion. You see, he doesn't mind if you go to church and you read religious books and and you're even nice to people. As long as you are not living a life consecrated to God. The devil is fine with that uh, picture or or that monument of the Ten Commandments in your front yard as long as your Bible goes unread most days. Friends, the war is real. And if our worship is going to be classified among those who are genuine, then it must pervade every area of our lives. I like the way Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8 and 9. These people draw near to Me with their mouth and honor Me with their lips. But their what? Their heart is far from Me. In vain they worship Me. Friends, if our heart, our thoughts and affections are not with Jesus, then in the final analysis, we are going to find ourselves among the majority who are worshiping the dragon. Because without the heart, we worship God in vain. Friends, the war began in heaven. And then it moved down to the earth. But it is not being fought in in a far-off place. Tonight, right here in this room, there is a war that is going on, and the importance and significance of this war far outweighs any physical war happening in Syria or Israel or North Korea or being deliberated over the President's desk. Tonight, the focus of heaven is in this room because the war in heaven has come down to us. And it is being fought in the battleground of your mind. That's what it's about, friends. I'd like to close tonight by sharing with you a story about a man by the name of Justin. Justin was just two weeks away from being inducted into the Buddhist faith. He had been raised in a Christian home He felt untouched by his religious upbringing. He found no satisfaction in Christianity. And so he turned his search elsewhere. And he now thought for the first time in his life that he had found what his soul was looking for. But then one day, he received an invitation in the mail to a prophecy seminar. And so... Justin thought, could it be that the Bible answers what's going to happen in the future? And he was so curious that he went. And that first night, he could hardly believe that the Scriptures could be so insightful. And for the next several weeks, his wife, his mother, his sister, and he attended that seminar. In these meetings, he discovered the inconsistencies of much of the popular teachings in the majority of the churches today. And for the first time in his life, he felt like light was coming in through the darkness. Friends, perhaps you're feeling the same way. Perhaps you've gone from church to church or from religion to religion. But your soul is not at home. But now you understand this great controversy that is being waged, and your desire is to stand with Jesus. Is that the desire of your heart? Do you want to stand with Jesus? Are you willing to keep coming and look further into these deceptions that are going on and how the Antichrist and his false ministers and teachers and pastors are leading you down the wrong way? Is that the desire of your heart? If it is, would you stand now? Make that stand for Jesus. And let's pray. Oh, loving Father, Lord, You know every heart here. You know those who are giving You lip service. And You know those who are serious. Lord, we are living in serious times. And there is a deception that is going on and we may not even realize that we're caught up in it. And so, Lord, our prayer is that you would be faithful and you would do what you've already said you would do. That if we would honestly seek the truth, that if we would search and put aside our preconceived notions and ideas and thoughts about what the Bible means, and we would honestly study, and we would be willing to follow the truth as you reveal it to us, you promise us that you will lead us into all truth. Lord, that's our desire. We don't want to be deceived. We don't want to be caught up in this mark of the beast. And so, Lord, our prayer is that You would guide our hearts and minds. Give us wisdom. Lord, don't allow the devil to distract us and pull us away. But keep us coming because we want to know the truth. Lord, You said that Your people perish because they don't have a love of the truth. Lord, help us to fall in love with the truth. Because if we do, we're falling in love with You. Lord, do we love You enough to to obey You? Even if it takes us out of our comfort zone. Lord, You tell us to count the cost. It costs us something to be true believers and true followers of God. But there's also cost associated if we don't. Lord, help us to examine ourselves. Help us to be willing to to allow You to make the changes that we need, that we can't make in ourselves. We pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.